everybody. How y'all doing? Welcome to another fabulous episode of This Week in Mormons. We're very happy you're joining us this week. Thank you very much for taking the time to do so. Uh, I'd like to remind you before we get going, you know, hit that subscribe button wherever you're getting your podcast, if you would, and follow us on social media. We would love to have you join the conversation in all the various places where we are doing those sorts of things. That would be most excellent. Uh, my name is Jeff Openshaw. I am the founder of This Week in Mormons. I'm happy to be here with you. And I'm joined by my co-host this week, Jared Gillins. Hey, Jared. Hello. Happy to be here as always. Although I think I, w- I-, I was just on last week too. This isn't usual for me. So I hope I- that people aren't getting tired of me, my voice or in this on- case, my face. And you were on the Christmas episode the week before. So this is a lot of... That is true. But I was one of Jared. many. So Potential Jared fatigue, but I think we'll be okay. <laughs> Better um, keep me off until March. We're, we're, I'm really excited for this week's discussion. I think this is going to be uh, quite worthwhile. So navigating LGBTQ issues has been complicated for Latter-day Saints. You know, we've come a long way in the past 20 years, I would say, but we've got a long way to go. It's a winding path. We're still seeking answers and still learning the best courses of action to undertake in our interpersonal relationships and also in our church life. You know, we, there's, there's lots that might still even change. Now, I think, and I can... I can speak from experience. You know, it can be easy to label same-sex attraction as something to be overcome, you know, a weakness meant to be eradicated similar to disease or addiction. It can be easy to assume a homosexual orientation is an error that we must do our best to fix, quote unquote. It can be easy to feel the best course of action for straight members of the church to take with gay Latter-day Saints is to preach to them, to offer them insights, to tell them how to get from A to B and to just preach to them all the time. After all, we are by nature an evangelizing people, uh, and we're very keen to share. But oftentimes, the most effective way to minister isn't necessarily by preaching, but by taking a step back and listening. And that's sort of folly to assume we understand LGBTQ saints and understand what they're experiencing simply because we have a testimony and read the scriptures. Uh, Perhaps the most Christ-like thing we can do is simply to listen and seek understanding from others. And that's where this week's guest comes in. Uh, Richard Osler, a former YSA bishop, speaks at firesides and conferences about how to more fully embrace LGBTQ Latter-day Saints, uh, see their gifts and contributions, and better understand their unique road. He is the host of the Listen, Learn, and Love podcast, which you can find at listenlearnandlove.org, which provides a platform for Latter-day Saints to share their stories on a number of topics. He's also the author of the eponymously titled book, Listen, Learn, and Love, Embracing LGBTQ Latter-day Saints, which is available at Deseret Book and Amazon. We'll have links to that over at thisweekinmormons.com with this episode, uh, as well as two recent Ensign articles. Uh, one, How the Savior's Healing Power Applies to Repenting from Sexual Sin, and also Seven Tips for Overcoming Pornography Use. Now, Richard is deeply committed to the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints and creating a more uh, understanding and supportive atmosphere for LGBTQ members, a goal that started during his service as a YSA bishop as he learned to set aside past assumptions to better fulfill his stewardship responsibility to meet the spiritual needs of LGBTQ ward members. So we're very thrilled to have Richard Osler, Papa Osler, with us this week. Welcome to This Week in Mormons, Richard. Thank you for being here. Glad to be here, Jeff and Jared. You both do great work with this show. Thank you. Now, in saying that, do you actually know of the of the terrible work we do with this show? Let's, you do let's, great work in 500 episodes, 10 years in this space. Um, it's you've you've sort of written the the manual for this space. So, great work to both of you. Did you hear that, everybody? Richard Oslo just said, This Week in Mormons has written the manual for podcasting in the Latter-day Saint realm. I would it's just like, true. that's on the record. Um, <laughs> before we get into it, just 
the the Papa Osler, where does that come from? You especially on Twitter, that's part of your handle and yeah, it's part of your identity. Um, I got on Twitter when I had a high school son and I started interacting with his high school age friends and I just wanted them to know I wasn't a high school age person. So I just called myself Papa Osler so they knew I was this adult interacting with them. And I just sent out the weather reports to the high school kids in our area because I kind of have an interest in the weather. But that's all kind of evolved now that I kept the Papa Osler handle. How funny. And how long ago was that? Like how long have you been Papa Osler? That's about eight years or so I've been on Twitter. So that even predated you being called as a YSA bishop. Yeah, it did. So that is true. So to start us off, uh, if our listeners aren't familiar with you, I think you're a, a notable figure within the, within our space. But when did you start your podcast? Like, what got you into that down that path? Tell us about that. Um, the podcast started about three years ago, Jeff, and I just felt like it would be a way because I was a YSA bishop and had a couple of gay men in the ward. Okay, and it's the first time that I listened to gay people tell me what it was like to be gay. Yeah. And in my mid-50s at the time, I realized that most of what I picked up was straight people telling me about LGBTQ people. So I just gradually felt impressed to start the podcast and let LGBTQ people tell their story, because that's really how my heart changed and my ability then to better minister and add and lip burdens versus add to them. So that's how the podcast started. It was just a way to amplify their voices and I call myself an ally, and an ally is someone who wants to just bring understanding to a marginalized group and amplify their voices so we can better understand how to meet their needs and help them feel like they belong. And so did did you, uh, as the brand Richard Osler, exist prior to the podcast? Were you doing any of this advocacy work? Uh there seems to be there's a little bit of a gap between I'm I'm assuming you were a bishop for about three years like a yeah so singles ward bishop in Utah is the three year assignment so I was a bishop for from 2013 to 2016 and the last year I was in social media it's kind of a long story and I'm old for social media but I just started the last year of being a YSA bishop posting kind things about LGBTQ people on my Facebook page and Twitter and I was fascinating what happened. A lot of the YSAs that were not really active or or active and straight, they just said, okay, I can talk to this guy. If he's going to talk kind about all groups of people, he's safe for me to open about what's really going on in my life. And that just sort of was kind of the door to sort of talking about more complicated stuff. Mm-hmm. So it was five years ago in 2015, and then I got released in 2016. And about that time, I just felt impressed to step in the space to be a really good Latter-day Saint and try to help bring more understanding to LGBTQ people. And that's where Listen, Learn, and Love started, because that was kind of how I just, my own personal journey is I had to listen, which for men my age is not something that we're very good at. I had to learn. (laughs) Um, which is something my men my age aren't often very good at because we kind of have the answers in our mid fifties. And, but then it gave me the ability to better love and love is a pretty broad term, but that support and minister and understand and have compassion and empathy and lift burdens. So that's a little bit about my journey, Jeff. And what about, so I think that's a great start and, and it helps us understand how you, you know, got into, being an advocate for these issues and this and this topic, 
and then also the podcast. And we were curious also, so you've got, you've been doing this podcast, you said for about three years and you've got a wealth of episodes that have covered a, a whole range of, of topics within um, LGBTQ uh, LDS culture, etc. cetera. Uh, but then you, you've, you've written this book and we're curious um, what, what made you want to write and publish a book in addition to the body of podcasts that you had established? <clears throat> Well, I just got, to be honest, I was sitting on the beach in California, and I just felt an impression to write a book. And I'm not a writer. Um, I've, I, my kids go to their mom for any sort, of, any sort of skill in that area. And I didn't do anything with it for about six or eight months. And um, I just then finally decided to do it. And I just felt like um, I'd been in this space long enough. I'd been asked every question that I thought I could have been asked. I connected with a lot of uh, people in the space, and there were just a lot of wonderful stories out there. And I, and maybe part of the reason is I just get so many questions on social media. I make myself pretty available, and so many DMs. And I just thought, well, maybe I could write a book and just point everybody to the book and get less, <laughs> and get less, you know, questions because I would have content there that I could point them to. So it was a number of reasons. Um, to write the book, but all the proceeds to the book go to a young man who died of suicide, a gay LDS teenager that his family established a memorial fund. I don't want to be um, making royalties off of LGBTQ stories. Um, so I think Heavenly Father just put me in a space where at this point in my life and being financially stable, I could do something like that um, in a way that just felt like the right tone. So the book is... Um, it's if people read it, it's not much about me. It's mostly about LGBTQ people and parents that have have LGBTQ kid. And both of those groups have been receiving a lot of personal revelation for their journey. You know, it's interesting you say you're not a writer, but I mean, I noticed as I was reading and, and I'll tell you in my professional life, I'm an editor. I, I edit words for a living and I mean, you saying you're not a writer, it kind of takes me a little bit by surprise because it's not only well-written and very readable, but also it was really apparent to me that it was very carefully written. And even like, even just True. now, <laughs> your, your word choice, choice in saying died by suicide rather than committed suicide or killed himself, right. like, you're, you're, you're very intentional, not only with how you word and term things and how you talk about people and talk about your experiences and other people's experiences, but also to me, it seemed very that the book was very intentionally ordered the way you structured it and laid it out had to me a very, was very significant and seemed very careful of well thought out like a writer would. And I, I was wondering if you would talk about that a little bit, like why did you structure your book the way you did? What is, what are you building to, or what, why did you uh, choose the order that the book ended up being in? It's a good question. And thank you. Maybe I'm underselling my writing abilities. Um, I did have a couple good editors, one editor, a couple editors that helped me, but I did write the book. I thought at one point I'd just sort of give someone, an editor, a chance to write it, but I just felt impressed I had to write this. And I spent just hundreds and hundreds of hours, and I, you're kind, Jared, because I really wanted to get the wording right. And I realized if I'd written this year one of being in this space, it would be a very different book than it was now because I've just been in this space and heard so many stories and met with so many people. Um, the book for listener, for your listeners is um, a big part of it is myths, um, false statements. Chapter three, four, and five are really key sections. Um, false statements on 
on why people are LGBTQ, like they looked at pornography or they were sexually assaulted as a child or they had a dominant mother. And I just try to go through um, why all of those are false. We've always tried to explain away why people are LGBTQ. And I've come to the conclusion they're just created that way and nothing went awry. <laughs> and that's a whole paradigm shift because then the responsibility isn't on the LGBTQ person to be straight. It's on us as the body of Christ to help them feel like they belong and are loved. Another chapter is um, false statements on what LGBT people should do. Uh, another one is um, false statements about LGBTQ people. So each of those have nine false statements, and that's um, a lot of the heart of the book. Chapter six is the atonement of Jesus Christ. Um, the theme there is that Christ descended below all things. And so for many of our LGBTQ members, that doctrine is so important for them um, that Christ somehow in his um, in the, the magnificent atonement that he can bear, he understands and he can walk with LGBTQ members. And often they'll say the atonement isn't to change my orientation, it's to, it's to heal my broken heart. Um, I look at the atonement as, I don't like to put bounds on the atonement, Jared and Jeff. I look at the atonement as I'm right-handed, I have blue eyes. I can't use the atonement to have to become left-handed or have brown eyes. And that's what I think we should, it, and that's the, I think the thinking LGBTQ people need to have and we need to have with them. But the atonement can heal hearts. And so there's a real role for the atonement, but it's not what I first thought. Um, Ten years ago, I would have said, well, someone... Everything's possible with the atonement. So if someone just prays harder and makes a better deal with God, mm -hmm. they can be straight. And I've heard so many stories of just the endless deal making with God to be straight. I'll go on my mission. I'll get up even early. And it's just you. It's just not. It's just brutal. And the church doesn't teach that. The church clearly teaches that a change in sexual relation shouldn't be demanded by the person, the parent or the leader. And I quote church leaders in that. Um. Uh, chapter two, I'm kind of skipping around, is Christ's teachings to support LGBTQ Latter-day Saints. A lot of um, Christ's parables are parables that I think exist. They're timeless. Um, the pool of Bethesda, the Canaanite woman, um, the woman at the well. And I think of all of those principles that Christ taught. And he's basically taking the gospel of the marginalized people and helping them feel included. And making sure that even those that may be in power, um, we recognize that we need to have balance there. We need to make sure that those that are marginalized feel included. That's not being critical of people in power. I don't want to infer that I'm not supportive of church leaders in saying that. But sometimes it's just tradition that we look at marginalized groups of people and we look at them with disfavor. But Christ's parables challenged all of that thinking in his day. And I think. Same thing with us in our day. Um, so that's some of the chapters without going into tons of detail about the book. You can just keep reading. It'll be like a reading. You can just keep reading. <laughs> um, well, one thing that really jumped out at me, though, is how, how honest you are in the book and on your podcast. And I appreciated this so much. Basically, in, you described like who you were maybe in 2013, that you had preconceived notions, that you, had, you experienced discomfort. You didn't know how to talk to LGBTQ Latter-day Saints. I love that you're honest about that because I think we still struggle with it. I think I still 
find areas to sure. navigate around that. You want to feel like you're not stepping on toes. You want to feel like you're being appropriate. And like Jared said, you know, using intentional language, which I think is a big takeaway from this book, the importance of respecting what others wish to be called or how, how they want to be referred to and being careful in what we say and how we say it and, and to whom we say it. Um, but I guess that's one thing that kind of jumped out at me because you talked about even your sort of trepidation in associating with gay Latter-day Saints or appearing as an advocate that that could be interpreted poorly, more or less by others, as if it could mean you were endorsing, I'm not going to call it the lifestyle, but if you were endorsing that. Um, but So what can you say to Latter-day Saints who might feel the same way, who might feel worried that if they appear to be advocates or allies, that others are going to take it to mean, you know, they're they're against the teachings of the church, or I'm sure it's a litany of, of things we could put upon this. But what do you say to individuals like that to help them feel better about it and understand it's like it's, it's okay. a complicated space. And so yeah. I think a lot of people are worried that if I get too close with LGBTQ people, I'm somehow crossing teachings. Um, let me just backtrack a little bit. I think a lot of the book, as you pointed out, is educational. So I th- it's vocabulary. It's like both of you have said. It's sort of the things I wish I knew 20 years ago. Um, and so I encourage listeners of yours to read the book. It's just educational on things that none of it challenges the doctrine of our church. It's just things that I would have said someone became gay for all these different reasons. And now I just realize a lot of those reasons are wrong. And I would just add to people's burdens with my uninformed opinions I call it the trap of unearned trap of unearned opinions. It's easy to develop opinions. It takes more humility to not develop opinions about a group of people until you actually meet people in that group. And if you don't meet people in the group, it's better to say, I don't know. And we're not very, I've never been great at that. Um, but the second part of your question is what do we do? And I just learned that, as I look at Christ's parables, he was with everybody. And to me, I don't see, and even our Temple Recommend question seven has changed in the last year. Um, this affiliate with part is gone. So we can, which I think is relieving to Latter-day Saints, um, because we can be with it. We're, we're with people outside of our church teachings all the time. We go to dinner with people that drink wine so there's all these different times repeat with people, but for some reason in this space, we've always been worried we're crossing a line. And there's a lot of LGBTQ people are living teachings of our church, but to your point, there's some that have stepped away. Like, would we ascent, attend a same-sex wedding? And does that mean we're um, supporting that? And there's a story in the book of a mother um, who talked about, she, she framed it up this way. She said, well, if your friend invited you to their Catholic um, newborn's infant baptism, would you go? And most people, LDS people would say, sure, I'd go. But if we think about that, you know, our Book of Mormon is pretty critical on infant baptism. I think we even call that abomination. But she, um, her point was, you know, I might even post that on social media and, and wouldn't worry about my ward family thinking I've lost it because I attended Catholic Mass to support my friend. And so I think we're just supporting people in their very best life events. It, and I, I don't invite anybody to get into a same-sex marriage. or, But if they feel that's their path, I look at my doctrine, and my doctrine just tells me I should support them in the path that they feel is best for them. And for me, that's not crossing a line. Um, 
And I just, if they feel like that, I call it self-determined. If they self-determine a gay Latter-day Saint that they're going to be in a same-sex marriage, um, I'll support them in that. I'll attend their wedding um, and I'll just be there. One of my podcast guests, two high school kids um, from Corner Canyon High School in Salt Lake City, they were high school basketball. They won state basketball championship together. One's gay, one's straight. One was the student body president, the gay one. He's not a member of the church, but they were both in my home. And they just said, you know, one's, one's now on an LDS mission and one's dating men. So they're, they're on very different paths. But I said, how are you guys navigating this? Says, we just will be there for each other they're at each other's events. I will go to his mission farewell. I will be on the front row supporting him at his mission farewell. And he was, unless it got canceled by COVID. And the other guy that's on a mission said, I'm going to be at a same-sex wedding. And I'm going to support him for his very best life events. And that's what friendship's about. It's finding common ground in our differences and keeping us together as the same human family. And I like that they just kind of navigated that really well at, at something I couldn't have done at their age. That's great. I like that attitude. And like, I don't know. I think that's an important perspective. And and I think everyone's going to have to come up with their own answers, right? Agreed. To, to figure out what they're comfortable with, to figure out how to show love in the best way. Um, but like you said, like, you know, I, I wouldn't hesitate to go to a, a christening uh, of, of a good friend of mine. So that opens your mind to thinking like, well, if that's okay. And, and like you said, Mormon calls that solemn mockery before God. If we're okay with yeah. attending uh, an infant christening or, you know, or whatever, what else should I also be open to? And it, and again, as as Jeff noted, you are very honest with us in the book, and and in a lot of ways, you know, you're not only helping share these stories, and as you noted, most of the stories, most of the book is not about you, but you do open yourself up a little. And I, and there was a, I, I don't, I'm sorry if this is going to embarrass you, but I'm going to quote you to yourself. Good. Um, from uh, about halfway through the book, you know, because you're talking about this change that had to come over you, and that you had to, you know, to work to make in yourself. But I, I liked this quote because there was a certain, there was a particular word that stuck out to me. It says. I know that my pride or enmity towards others at times keeps me from listening to and having the humility to fully understand, minister to, and connect with marginalized groups such as LGBTQ Latter-day Saints. My pride kept me from being open to learning about their difficult road, bearing their burdens, seeing their contributions, and being their friend. In that second sentence, you use the past tense, but in that first sentence, you said keeps a present tense as, as if to say, I'm not done yet. And I wonder right. how how do you recognize when your pride is continuing? Because you might say, "Hey, look, I have this podcast. I wrote this book. I've got pictures with my friend, my gay friends on Facebook. I'm good. I, I've I've arrived. I'm a woke Latter Day Saint." <laughs> <laughs> how do you how do you keep that presence and awareness to know that I'm still working on this? How do you recognize when you're fa- failing? How do you see you know my pride is currently keeping me? from being better at being from being who the Lord wants me to be. It's a great question. And I've, I did some podcasts with some black Latter-day Saints this, this year. And they were really, a couple of them were really uncomfortable for me. Not the whole podcast, but some. And I've learned 10 years ago, I just would have withdrawn, I would have withdrawn from that feeling because I don't like to feel uncomfortable. <laughs> um, but I've learned to kind of sit with that for a period of time and wonder, where is that coming from? Is it a spirit telling me to step away from that feeling? Or is it 
the beginning of changing of of being programmed in a better way to see things I haven't seen before. And in both of those cases with those Black Latter-day Saints, I recognize my own racism and my own views that I would never have seen except I listened to Black Latter-day Saints. And I go, oh, my gosh, I've never thought of it that way. And I've never recognized the white privilege that I have. And so for me, I've had more of that. Maybe I've been in the LGBTQ space long enough that I don't get that feeling as much. But I'll tell you what, those Black Latter-day Saints, I was glad for that feeling because that's, for me, where personal growth comes. And I'm not at the finish line yet, but I love that feeling now at times when I get challenged. And I and I guess I'm confident enough in my own identity and my feeling about our restored church that I, I want to continue to learn um, so that I can do what I think my baptism covenants require and help other people. Well, <clears throat> so that's a great, this is a great area, being uncomfortable and how we overcome that. No, I think this is important because I think, I think sometimes we, uh, you know, we, we're seeking the peace of the gospel. We, we don't seek discomfort or anything like right. that, right? It's, it's not natural. Uh, I, I like that you are so, um, that you're so happy about feeling discomfort. So if we're focusing on LGBTQ Latter-day Saints, this is broad, but like, what do you think we can do as a people to both be okay with being uncomfortable around some issues? And what can we do to, to, this sounds dumb. What can we do to be comfortable being uncomfortable (laughs) in order to work on overcoming those things? Well, this may not directly answer your question, but the real shift occurred for me um, Jeff and Jared is when I had always heard LGBT community. And in my mind, I actually visualized another group of people on a different road that at times, that times was a threat to me and my family. Mm. And I heard enough narrative in church and society that this group is a threat to me. And that all shifted for me when I was a singles ward bishop and a couple of these guys just sat with me and told me their story. And it just, oh my gosh, this is someone I've stewardship responsibility for. So with Gallup, Gallup in the United States estimates that about four to 5% of America population identifies as LGBTQ. If we assume that's true for the LDS church worldwide at 16 million, that means over 700,000 of our own people um, identify as LGBTQ. That's like filling Lavelle Edwards Stadium 11 times with our own people that are LGBTQ. And if that's a paradigm shift for me, maybe your listeners are already there, or maybe they'll go. And so then you just see th- these people are in our families, they're in our ward, they're everywhere. Um, they're not this different group. And then we start to say, think, how am I going to teach this lesson or or the need to stop the gay jokes or the need to make a sort of a villain out of LGBTQ people as I teach the doctrine of our church, because they're sitting there right with us and they're hearing everything we say. And if there's always a negative narrative about them in our family and church, they just don't feel welcome and they leave. Not because they don't believe in the doctrine of the church. They just don't feel welcome. And so I think we just need to start recognizing there's LGBTQ people and saying kind things about them over the pulpit in our classroom. Even if we, even if we think there's no one LGBTQ, LGBTQ in my ward 
or my family, um, we've got to just start saying positive things. I think that's what Christ would want us to do. One of the stories in the book is President Mansell and a mission president in Oklahoma City asked the leadership council, says, what do we got to do to improve as a mission? An elder minor, whose dad is my friend, raised his hand and says, we need to stop the gay jokes, President. And he said, you're exactly right. If we're representing Jesus Christ, there is no room for gay jokes in the culture of our mission. And they resolved that day to be better disciples of Christ. And so we can all do that. Um, but it just takes a focus and a concerted effort because there's gay missionaries in that Oklahoma City mission. Yeah. They were hearing all those gay jokes. <laughs> it's it's funny you mention all this because, like, I mean, I went to high school in the late 90s. And you're 20 years younger than me, Jeff. And that's okay. I, but I, I feel at least my body feels like it might be right up there with you. Um, uh, Jared can probably cop to this as well, but like it was so normal at that age when I was near the end of, in, in high school to use gay as a pejorative to make fun exactly. of anyone being gay. And like, I'm, I'm ashamed of that now. I mean, there's part of me that understands it was definitely much more of a product of the time, but I don't always right. like product of the time to be an excuse for bad behavior. Um, I'm glad we've come some distance since then as a people. I mean, I compare my experiences in high school, even to my younger siblings who are, you know, six or so years behind me, where it was totally different for them. Even just that gap where they had kids at school who were out and proud about it. And it was fine because I never saw that at all in high school. No, anyone who was gay in my high school was closeted for sure. And uh, I'm just being a little more personal right now, but I, I, I'm glad we've come some distance, but we still have like a ways more to go. Uh, one thing you mentioned real quick, you talked about you viewed even gay rights as a threat to the family, you know, many years ago. And I think many of us have felt that way. I think given many of us were taught, taught that from many of know. us were taught that even at church more or less. Um, I think there's a great quote here from a man named Jeff case that you quoted in the book. Yeah. And he says, when I he says, quote, when I hear members use threat to the family as a euphemism for the LGBTQ community seeking civil rights, I remind them of what the actual threats are to their families. The families of those sitting in the room that day were at risk uh, for a different set of reasons than the ones they were implying. Excessive debt, domestic violence, various forms of abuse, infidelity, etc. The threat is not, in fact, the pursuit of civil rights by the LGBTQ community. The only threat that I am to my congregation by being out and vocal is that sometimes I push people into evaluating their assumptions. So I'm curious... I think you've hinted a bit how you feel about that statement, but how do you feel about that, especially with regard to some of the actions the church itself has taken related to LGBTQ rights? I mean, I'm thinking of something like Prop 8 in California. I was in California during Prop 8. I know that was also many years ago, and we've evolved since then. But um, do, you, do you think that church, I think the church has come a long way, but do you also feel that we're still in some ways we do rub up against that and do feel that LGBTQ rights somehow do infringe upon the proclamation type family that we try to put forth for the mission. Great question. And um, some, I think when we say, you know, we talk about religious freedom, we're under attack. We need to identify who, what the attack is and who the attackers are. And, and instead of just this vague, we're under attack. Because a lot of people just sit in the congregation and say, oh, that's gay people. They're attacking us. And they don't know how to activate that in their lives except not be kind to gay people and pull away from gay people. So I think it's important that we're very specific. If we say we're under attack or 
or exactly what the threat is from gay people. There are gay people that want our church to fail, no question. There are straight people that want our church to fail. Um, But just dependent on one group is not fair. And I think we can just live a higher, holier law of where we just recognize there's people outside our faith that aren't, that don't want our faith to fail, but just want permission to live their lives the way they want to. Um, I One of my favorite quotes in the book and is from Brene Brown. She talks about common enemy intimacy is the opposite of true belonging. If the bond we share, we simply hate the same people. The intimacy we experience is intense, gratifying, and an easy way to discharge our pain and outrage. It's not, however, fuel for real connection. So if I'm in a political party or in a faith group, just because I want to sit there and talk about how bad the other side is and how much we're under attack, that creates a lot of connection. But I think I would argue it creates it's not sustainable. It creates anxiety and stress. And I think we just I think we can be in church and not have to have a bogeyman or a villain to drive home our point. We can teach all the doctrine of our church without sort of taking on other groups of people, Catholics or the gays or my straight marriage can stand on its own merits. I don't need to demonize same-sex marriage. I can just have a factual discussion that this is outside the doctrine of our church, um, but these are still God's children that have chosen to live this way. And our doctrine is we're supposed to love everybody. So this is a test of our doctrine. Can we show love to people that are different than us? And that doesn't mean, you know, we we then we just are kind to people. Um, there's a lot of progress being made. I just there's two openly gay serving elders corn presidents that I'm aware of. One just messaged me um, in Arizona, and he has an interesting story because he was in a same sex marriage for several decades to a cardiologist, and his husband died, and he felt impressed to come back to the church. So he's older than I am. And he's in Arizona, and there's been an inside article about him. And he was just called his elders corn president. Of course, everybody knows he's gay. It's not like he's closeted. Yeah. And he's just the state president. Just felt like he was the right guy, and he and that quorum just loves him. And you know they know he's gay, and they just but they know that's just part of who he is and his ability then to bring everybody together in that quorum. There's a missionary out serving right now that. Um, most of the missionaries that I interview, if they come out to their mission president, their mission president would kind of say, well, don't talk about it. Um, that's okay, you're gay, but just don't tell anybody. And maybe that was to protect them. But there's a missionary, just how much change in a short period of time, there's a missionary serving right now who was out to his family, his local leaders before he left. He was out to his mission president. His mission president, instead of saying, don't talk about this, is saying, Will you train us on how we can be more kind to LGBTQ people? Will you train the whole mission? And I get tears in his eyes because this guy now, what kind of feeling of belonging does he feel in his mission? Where his mission president is asking him, will you take this part of you that we think we value and help us to know how to better minister to LGBTQ people and perhaps even have more LGBTQ people join our church? Um, because we have better tools to help them feel like they're needed. Um, so that, you know, those kind of things give me hope um, that we're just moving in the right direction. But um, I want to come back to one of your 
I sort of look at the church's relationship with its LGBTQ members as like a 40 chapter book. And I talk about this in the book yeah. and that's the best way I can frame this is, um, and, and the idea of a 40 chapter book is we just have more chapters to write and we're not at the finish line. And I think elder Ballard said that in a quote, he said at BYU, we just, you know, he just talked about L- our LGBTQ members and we have more work to do now. One of the and so when I think of the earlier chapters, those are some of the things you might have mentioned, like chapter prop eight, or some of the things we said about gay people that we don't say anymore. And I think we have to own those prior chapters and acknowledge them because it helps heal people. And I've learned to sit with people, active Latter Day Saints that are aware of those earlier chapters or a part of those early chapters, and there's so much pain there. And if we don't sit with them in that pain and acknowledge that pain. I've learned I can be supportive of our leaders in church and sit with people in the pain of those earlier chapters. Um, and to me, that's just what I'm supposed to do as a minister, as part of my baptism covenants. And that's been an evolving thing for me because I didn't think I could do both. I thought, well, that's selling out my church if I acknowledge the pain of our past. But I think it's what we need to do to heal and move forward, just to have someone sit with someone and acknowledge the pain and not dismiss it, not have them prove it, not have them say, oh, really, someone really didn't mean that. If they feel pain, just honor that. Don't make them prove it. It just re-traumatizes them. But in the other chapter, I don't know what chapter we're in. I don't want to infer I know what chapter in. Um, and some people say, well, what's chapter 40? Will our doctrine change? And I, I don't know Heavenly Father's will, and I'm not a leader of the church. I support our current doctrine. I'm not asking it for change. But some LGBTQ people that are active in the church hope something changes, a policy or doctrine. And I hope we don't um, make them feel less faithful because they follow current teachings at the same time hoping something changes. That, to me, just makes our church small. It's playing small ball. And let's create space for people that follow our church teachings, even if they hope something changes. Now, Chapter 40, to me, represents... Something like a mom, when she learns her 13-year-old son is gay, right now she's full of fear. And chapter 40 is when she's not full of fear. Um, She has the same level of hope for a gay 13-year-old son as her straight 13-year-old son in this life and the next life. And where LGBTQ members are feeling the same experience at churches are straight members, and they're not. Um, It's much harder for them. And the percent that step away is much higher than straight members. So. I, as a faithful Latter-day Saint, just recognize we have more work to do, more chapters to write. Um, It's an ongoing restoration. Where I don't get into is saying what the chapters are, you know, and this is what we ought to do as a church, because I just don't know God's will and I'm not a leader. That's the way I manage that complex space personally. That makes sense. And and I I think you did a good job of balancing that in the book where you recognize, like you said, um, you, you share the voices of, of a lot of uh, LGBTQ members, uh, both in and, and those who have left the church. And I like that you gave space to, to, you know, all groups. You didn't discriminate there. And that some of them did were more specific. And some of them did say, this is what I hope for. But like you said, you kind of kept your hands off of it. But you also shored up some of the, that I, at least the idea of change and of continuing revelation. You quoted Elder Uchtdorf on page 250. Uh, and I won't read the quote, but, you know, basically he was talking about how we need to not let our pride get in the way of allowing new revelation and new 
new insights and new ways of seeing things. And I, I just think that's a really important idea. And a lot of, uh, I also noticed several people that you, who you shared their stories uh, referenced the ninth article of faith and that that was a source of hope for them, that God will yet reveal many great and important things pertaining to the kingdom of God. And we're all members of the kingdom of God. Right. Um, so yeah, I, I don't know if there's a question in here, but I just want to agree with you, Jared. Yeah. I'm with you, man. Yeah. I mean, and I just appreciate again, this idea, and this is going back again, and we're kind of, we've kind of been layering our comments and referring back to each other. And I want to go back and you talked about, uh, Paul's um, analogy of the body of Christ um, and that we're all members of it. And, and you even talk and you go into this in the book too. And, you know, that, that sometimes we consider others lesser members of the body, but then he said, those lesser members we honor and we raise. Um, and I think, again, you did a good job of that in the book. And, and I know, I mean, it's part of the title love, but it, that's something that struck me throughout the book that one of the sort of the, maybe to me, the central message was this one of love and whether that means condoning or accepting, or, I mean, there's all sorts of other words that get a little sticky, right. But a word that's never sticky when we're talking about these issues and talking about members of the Lord's church and children of God, whether or not they're members of the church is our, our duty to love them anyway. And not, not just duty. It should be beyond a duty, right? It should be our desire to, to just love everybody. Anyway, again, I don't know if I have a question in here, but I guess I'm um, sermonizing and, I'm, and I apologize. Out. Yeah. But I don't know. I, it, to me, it was important and it was important to me to read these things because it, you know, just like you, I read that quote where you talked about how you, you know, still run up against things where you realize your pride is in the way. As I read the book, you know, there were parts that made me uncomfortable that made me stop and think, do, am I, do I have that stereotype? Do I have that prejudice? Do I make these assumptions? And I was grateful for a reminder to step outside of myself and my own, whatever I think, and get back to the basic doctrine of, of loving everybody. Anyway, it was it was something I needed. So thank you, Jared. You're you're hitting on something interesting there because I'm there's some parts of the book that talk about labels and you know even the discomfort some experience with members of the LGBTQ community needing to come out, needing to be vocal about it. You know, needing to, uh, and some might feel like you know why are they drawing so much attention to this? And I like that the the response to that is like there was I forgot who said it, but there was one I'm paraphrasing. But a great quote where someone said, look, like the entire world is one big outing of heterosexual behavior. So why would we not, uh, you know, do the same? But, but Jared, I think I like what you say. We we still experience little prejudices here and there. And if I'll totally out myself here, not out myself, boy, this is the wrong podcast to use that expression. I will totally (laughs) show myself. Um, A couple of weeks ago, the now actor Elliot Page, formerly Ellen Page, for example, uh, came out as transgender and is now Elliot Page. And for the most part, I'm like, okay, cool. But I admit there's a part of me that's like, why? Like, why is this in the news? Why do I care, right? <laughs> and, and, and I recognize at the same time when I was feeling that way, like, that is that is important to Elliot. It's an important part of Elliot's journey. Um, even if I admit there's this human part of me that was just like, dude, I don't I don't need to know this, Elliot. Leave it alone. And I guess that's part of our... Our weakness, right? Because we, I'm not experiencing those things. I'm not, I have never had to deal with those sorts of feelings or gender dysphoria or anything like that. So obviously it is something that's very crucial for uh, the individuals who do, do have those experiences to be able to talk about it and to be able to have a venue to do those things. So I appreciated that section of the books. I think it was a really good potent reminder, um, that it's because I think it can seem to even to a lot of members of the church, like why is there so much coverage of 
gay members of the church coming out yeah. and talking about it. Um, just some comments as you two are talking. I I sometimes just say this comment. I think it's a false dichotomy that to fully love and follow God, I need to stop loving some of his children. Mm. I think we've just created this, sometimes this way of thinking that I don't think is consistent with what Christ taught in these these great commandments. To me, these are equal, co-equal great commandments. Love the Lord with all thy heart. And I think we best do that by loving our fellow men. As a parent of six kids, the things my kids can do for me the most is treat each other well, even in their differences. There's nothing they can do to love me better than how they treat each other and showing love to each other. So I, I can't speak for Heavenly Father and our Heavenly Parents, but I think so much of their, I just think they they, they, they're sad when we divide and they're happy. And I think the test is when they're ha- in our differences, we come to our differences and find common ground. doesn't mean we agree. And that's why your podcast is really important. But we find common ground principles because our doctrine is we're the same human family. That gay man, if he's leaving the church for a same-sex marriage, is still my spirit brother. And because of that doctrine that's so beautiful and unique to our church, I should just, I, I have, and I understand this, I should be just loving to him and leave it all, and leave all judging to our Savior and his perfect understanding. I love, um, Jared, when you talked about the body of Christ and Paul. And I used to think my job as the ally was to save LGBTQ people. And I've done that a little bit, but I get very tenderhearted here. They have saved me. They have taught me things about the doctrine of Christ, about preach my gospel, chapter six, Christ-like attributes that no one's taught me. And it's because they walk a really hard road. And they've had to develop Christ-like attributes and have strong relationship. And we need, just like I have felt um, I've become a better disciple we need that same thing for our our community in the church. We need our LGBTQ people to help us to become the body of Christ that I think God wants us to become. Um, and I just think there's upside in our growth as we've learned to fully include our LGBTQ members. Um, and that's been a real paradigm shift for me. Um, I've given, you know, I think I mentioned this book, hundreds of blessings to LGBTQ people. Not as a bishop, not in a formal way, just as a friend, as a priesthood holder. But I bless some of the most valiant premortal spirits that I've ever blessed. But who they are and their role is largely masked from our mortal eyes. And they are some of the most valiant, wonderful. But they have are on a hard road here. Um, but we need to do a better job. And and I just want to just a note about transgender. Um, that's a whole different space, as you two know. And for your, for any listeners, gender identity is different than sexual orientation. So someone with the best way I can describe it is gender dysphoria is the pain someone feels when their biological sex doesn't match their identity. And if any of your it, people have been carsick, and carsick is the nauseated feeling of this being in a car and being sick. And what do you want to do when you're car sick? You want to get out of the car. But our but gender dysphoria is like that. It's the same nauseated feeling 
And so people want to do everything, they, anything they can to escape that. And so that's when, and that's what being transgender is, is having long-term gender dysphoria. And I'm cisgender. I'm biologically male. I feel male. I have none of that feeling in me. And so it's like, it's like me describing car sickness to your listeners who have never been car sick or have never been in a car. They would have no way to relate to that. So to relate to it, you have to hear transgender people talk about that experience. And then you develop empathy. And transitioning is just an attempt to deal with that. And, and some of that is okay with the teachings of the church, and some of it is not okay with the teachings of the church. And I go to that in the book, and the church has just started a new landing page for transgender Latter-day Saints. Yeah, that so was interesting. Something- yeah. Go ahead. I, I, well, I, I had no idea, like, you know, that um, – and it's interesting, you know, we do put a lot of stock into what the handbook says, um, but it's, it was interesting to me that the handbook or that the, the instruction allows for some uh, some what do you, hormone therapy. Um, yeah. And I and I had never thought that the church would be on board with that. But yeah, anyway, so that was another eye opener for me. So I did a podcast with an LDS bishop. He's biologically male. He looks male. He's married to his wife. He's active in church. He's got a bunch of kids, and he has gender dysphoria, and it's been with him his whole life. and And he takes hormones, and that's just all he needs to manage the car sickness. Um, he takes estrogen, and that is just all he needs. And it's his ram in the thicket. It's his answer to prayer to keep him. And it's not a mental illness. It's you know, it's a, it's not the. Whoever's in charge of categorizing these things has moved it out of the mental illness. <laughs> um, and I think, we, I think we'll just learn the science why this good man feels gender dysphoria and we'll develop more empathy as we eventually understand why someone feels this way. No, I don't think he's being deceived by Satan. That's easy to say that. Or this isn't a sign of the last days. That's easy to sort of dismiss that. But actually to sit with somebody and hear this long-term story of gender dysphoria and then, like you said, Jeff um, or Jared, that he can take hormones and the church handbook outlines where that's appropriate and it doesn't restrict his church participation. Yeah, <clears throat> that's a that's a fine line, I think, in transgender issues. And you don't you even yeah. mentioned book. you don't spend a lot of time on transgender issues in the book. I think, as you say, it hasn't been at, you don't have as much of a corpus there in terms of what you've done. Um but I think it's the only chapter I decided you're right, but it's the only chapter I decided to do a dedicated chapter because in the LGBTQ world are my trans friends. They get marginalized within that whole discussion because it often goes to gay men and then gay women and all these other minorities within that minority group often get more m- marginalized. So yeah. that's the only reason I did a dedicated chapter, but it's a short chapter. It is. And, I just, I, I think in in thinking about this, the content of the book and even the church's standards, it, it's incumbent upon us to have a lot of empathy for the transgender saints among us, especially because I don't think I'm misstating anything, but you can be a, a gay Latter-day Saint and you can receive all of the ordinances yeah. and be fully participating. If you're transgender, you can to a degree, but if you go a step beyond, you know, uh, hormone therapy, for example, as Jared was saying. You know, if you do elect, if you do elect, or you're pondering to have surgery that might alter your gender, that does like become an issue as far as the church is concerned. You're right. What is available to you? And I think that's hard because I think there's a lot of hope we find for the the gay 
population of Latter-day Saints. And there's a lot of hope in the book. But I can imagine for the transgender community, that's a much tougher walk because they realize there's only so much of their authentic selves they can be. And, you know, they could be as celibate as they want, but if they decide to have surgery to change their gender, it it changes the equation quite a bit. Or, and that's, that's a tough. Or even to just do. considering, you know, our church um, in, in our praxis, in our, you know, the things that we do to act out our faith, uh, a lot of it is broken down by gender. When we go to the temple, we're separated into, into, into sex groups and we, the different groups do different things and wear different clothing. And if you were a man who identified as a woman or vice versa, and you wanted to sit on one side of the room in the temple, you can't. And so, yeah, there's no relief, at least, you know, in the current view of things for that sort of thing in the church. Like Jeff said, you know, and you even have a, a chapter towards the end about, options for Latter-day Saints. And there are options and they're not, none of them seem to be perfect or easy, but you know, for, um, for lesbian, gay and bisexual saints. But when you get into transgendered saints, like the options seem to disappear because how do you say, Oh, I want to sit on that side of the temple, you know, and, and you can't because of the way, uh, the way we administer these ordinances. And so it is very difficult. And I think it is important. I'm glad you, you, you guys, um, jumped more into this side of the discussion because we wouldn't want to leave anyone out and even doing this like and you say this in the book we're not talking about intersex people we're not talking about you know all sorts of things and so we're always going to leave somebody out but it was i think it does bear um you know it's 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 a worthy uh, way to dedicate our time to just go ahead and say like no we we see you too transgendered saints we see you too everyone else who we haven't talked about. And I wish that we did have time and, and it would be great if your book was three times as thick. So you could just address everybody who needed attention in, the, in these matters. Well said. Let, Richard, let me ask you one question here. So there's one point in the book when you say that uh, the idea of all the many, the many statements you say are false, you know, in those sections, you say the idea that all gay members will be cishet in the afterlife is false. I think that's a reasonably bold claim. And you're not saying like, you just don't know, you're saying it's false. Um, can you, exp- it's, you're not saying we're not sure. Can can you expound on that? Like why you think that's. Yeah, I did put that in the false statements because I didn't sort of have a section for sort of false or so. <laughs> or maybe <laughs> I'm false. glad you brought that up because there are within there, the idea for your listeners is something that I've always taught is that everybody that's gay will be straight in the next life. And I even quote, <clears throat> I believe Elder Wickman who made that statement. And I didn't want to say, I don't agree with that as statement, but I just wanted to point out that a lot, that some um, LG, you know, gay and lesbian Latter-day Saints that are active in the church don't look at the resurrection as something that carves out things that are bad. And they don't look at being gay or lesbian as something that needs to be fixed in the next life. Um, And they don't want this fixed in the next life. And so my point is to try to create space that every LGBT person kind of gets to decide for themselves what their hope is around the resurrection. And I, as a straight person, shouldn't legislate that for them. I I don't think we all need to have the same exact beliefs about how things work in the next life to be considered faithful Latter-day Saints now. And also going to make the point that if we teach that everybody's straight in the next life, 
And you get very vulnerable gay Latter-day Saints that are making these deals with God to be straight, and it's not working. And they've just come home from their mission, dedicating 24 months, hyper-religiosity, and they're still gay. They've got this final ace in the hole to be straight, and it's to die by suicide. Because then they'll be straight. And I think all everybody can agree that we wouldn't want to say anything that causes someone to have a higher risk of suicide. So that's kind of the core message of that section is let's let LGBTQ Latter-day Saints decide what their hope is for the future about their orientation, their gender identity. There are some that are gay that want to be straight. They don't really like this part about them. Um, and there's some that believe this will be still a part of them. So it wasn't in that section in particular. I'm glad you brought it up because it wasn't to create a consistent correlated narrative, but just to create nuance around letting LGBTQ people sort of let's the resurrection for me is around hope. But let's let LGBTQ people define that hope for them for the next life. Thanks. Of the uh, of the false statements, of which there are many, I mean, there's three chapters of false statements and roughly 10 or so each per chapter. Uh, are there any that in the years you've been doing this that have that have sort of been the most meaningful to you or jumped out to you the most? I know that's a, a bit broad, but of all those false statements, which ones do you feel like are the most either impactful to you personally and should potentially be the most impactful to the rest of us as members of the church? Well, chapter three just goes through nine things of why people are LGBTQ. Um, Number one, they chose it. Number two, it's because they looked at pornography. Pornography to me is a window into someone's sexual orientation, not something that changes it. And pornography is something that needs to be solved. Um, So that, you know, but the first one is probably the most important one. They chose this. Um, that they and it's just if you think about that, it's why would anybody choose this? And I go through lots of stories there of people coming to realization that no one would choose this. It's the hardest thing as a committed Latter-day Saint to not be straight. And once you sort of realize that people didn't choose this and they and since they didn't choose it, they can't do something to unchoose it. Um, those kind of go hand in hand. If you believe they chose it, then you can sort of unchoose it and become straight. But so that's probably the sister one with that is they can't unchoose this and we can't ask them to do things to unchoose this. We can't ask them to pray it away, read the scriptures. It's just how they're wired. Doesn't take agency, doesn't change the commandments. But I think it helps someone look in the mirror if they're LGBTQ and think, this is how God created me. So maybe he loves me and maybe I can love myself. If I'm meeting with LGBTQ people, I'm not a therapist, but I will try to get them to accept this part about them and actually get them to feel through prayer that their heavenly parents love this part about them just like they love everything else about them. And if they can get to that point, the shame they feel for how they're created or this part of them can often lift and they just make better decisions in the church, in life. So that's a kind of a... a, tangent to your question, but um, there's so much shame around sexual orientation. Internalized homophobia is the term. It's just, if you're gay, you hate this part about you. And that creates a whole series of problems. Hating a part about you causes you to believe that God doesn't love you either. And it's harder to have a personal relationship. If you can accept this part about you and have a supportive group around you, including our faith community, that says, this is the way you're created. 
and it's a good thing. And we need you. It's part of the body of Christ that um, Jared talked about. Then I think we're creating healthier LGBTQ Latter-day Saints that are more likely to make better decisions. Self-harm is something people turn to when they don't feel very good about themselves. Um, the numbing effect of the numbing things that are ac- ac- accessible to all of us um, to, to numb ourselves. And sometimes people turn to that because of this. Yeah. Um, so we've talked a lot about uh, learning. I think all of us have been sharing our learning experiences, whether in preparation to or was reading this book. Uh, we've talked about loving a lot. I want to talk a little bit more and ask you about the listening part. You talked about earlier on in the interview, you said, you know, uh, you know, you recognize that as a, as a white middle-aged man, maybe your listening is not your greatest skill set and, and uh, that it's sort of common uh, or I guess uncommon to have that as a good skill set. You, you talk about it in the book too. You, there's a part where you talked about uh, as members and especially that leaders in the church need better listening skills. And you said, you know, you said, I, I'm not aware of any trainings that we have for better listening. So how do we, how do we work to fix that? I mean, I, and I, and I, and I hope you can talk about this maybe on a, on a larger scale than just like, how does Jared be a better listener? Or how does, you know, Richard be a better listener? Like, how do we make our church culture and our leadership culture within the church have better listening skills? Great question. And I did spend some time on the book. Um, I think it's not a attribute that's developed or valued. I think we look at our church leaders and they're awesome. And but it's they're the more their public skills that we value, um, their talks in particular. And they may be equally as good a listeners, but we just don't know that. <laughs> and what, I've never been to a training meeting on how to be a listener. And when I became a YSA bishop, it was just assumed I knew how to listen. And I think listening can heal and help people. Sometimes the, the longer I served as a singles word bishop, the more my interviews turned into listening and, and asking follow-up questions, open-ended follow-up questions and writing down spiritual impressions on my notepad. And often it took multiple interviews to sort of understand the totality of where a YSA was before I ever offered a suggestion. And that is a skill all of us can learn. It takes time and it takes discipline. And not just to turn to my soapbox or my toolbox as soon as I hear something, because I want to fix things. I'm a male. <laughs> but I often, when the YS, I did that with the YSAs, they would come to the same conclusions on their own that I would have suggested them much earlier on. But since they came to them on their own, it's more likely they'll adopt them and, and be fully invested in them because I didn't suggest them. So I, it just takes discipline. Um, it's something that people say, I'm not a good listener. I don't believe that. I think it's something that's all within us, that it takes discipline. I talk about it in the book, and I think it's something that should be developed. And I think it's something that we should somehow help men in particular learn how to do and value in men. We're, we're shorter on time right now. Uh, we haven't talked a lot about sort of the uh, the very common practice of equating LG saints to single saints in the church. Um, and I think we can just spend a few minutes on it. We shouldn't do that, for one. And you talk about that in the book, and you can explain why in a bit. But like, why why shouldn't we do that, Richard? Tell, tell us why not. Because there are many who will say that because they'll say, look, a, a single member of the church is 
also not, you know, they are, they are celibate, they are keeping the commandments. It's basically the same thing. But that's a very dangerous road to go down, especially because it can be offensive to... It is, Jeff. Others. And Ben, ben Shalotti, who's um, gay, BYU, gay Latter-day Saint, he's in the BYU Honor Code Office. He's just come out with his own book. He's a high counselor. He's gay, 100% gay, living church teachings, obviously, and he is a single sister. And they talk about this all the time. Ben is on defensive mode. So he doesn't pray at night. He'll find a man to take him to the, you know, I mean, he's just, he is on lockdown mode. So he's just emotionally guarded. So he doesn't fall in love with a man and, and then not be able to live teachings of the church. So he's just on emotional lockdown. And that's exhausting for Ben. And he'll tell you that his sister, on the other hand, who has a, it's not easy for her either. She's straight. She's single. She can pray every night that she'll find a woman. Sorry, a man. Um, and so her sexual orientation and her hopes line up and her prayers line up and her patriarchal blessing and her hopes for the next life, even if she doesn't find a man. So that's not easy, but it's all. So for Ben, it's really different because he he doesn't have that hope that she has. And for hope to be taken off the table I think we have to replace that as the body of saints with just empathy and say, Ben, we all as straight Latter-day Saints that are going home to our wives say, Ben, you know, we just recognize you have a really hard road. What can we do? Um, I think that's something we can do a lot more as a church instead of just reminding um, gay and lesbian Latter-day Saints to keep the commandments. That's We're good at that. And they know the doctrine like the back of their hand. I think we need to develop better empathy for what we're asking them to do and really acknowledge the complexity of what we're asking them to do and the sacrifice we're asking them to do and and just do everything we can to support them and sit with them and how painful that is at times for them when they don't have a life partner and they have no hope of having a life partner if they want to fully participate in the church. And I guess... How we talk about um, gay members of the church, like the examples you just gave, being celibate, more or less, and, and is like that. Do you feel? Do you feel personally like that is the requirement? Because I think celibate and chaste are different things, right? True. So, so, can this can a, a gay brother? Is it still within the confines of the gospel for him to to date? For, and there's even some examples in the book where some people talk about being True. temple worthy, and even cohabitating with someone who is their partner, but but not being sexually active. And so, like that's okay, and it might be different for everybody. For everybody, maybe that's something that we we'll also have to navigate on an individual level. But do you have any thoughts on that? On on how they navigate that, like where they would get in trouble and contravene the standards of the church or not? This is. This is a good question, and I try to not and I try to answer this in the sense I think we're trying to get to a principles-based faith. I look what happened with going from home teaching a checklist to ministering, and I look at a whole higher, holier way where it's a principles-based program where we're actually trying to minister to people we're assigned to and really meet their spiritual needs. So I I hope that happens in other areas of the church, like the law of chastity. It's a principles-based doctrine that you have to live the law of chastity, um, which is no sexual relations with anybody except you're married, and I support that. But instead of getting into all the details of every situation, 
we just empower members to live that and talk to their bishop, but they're not living that. And maybe, and, and maybe some of this, you know, so some bishops will let gay men in their ward or gay women in their ward date as long as they're living the law of chastity, just like they're straight couples, straight single couples. They give them the same rules. And some bishops that I know would never do that with a gay or lesbian. So there's just differences occurring in each ward. And you probably saw that in the book. But I think maybe that can be solved if we kind of get to a principles-based. And then you're not having every bishop, because there's no rule in the handbook. Every bishop then is left to interpret what this means. And you get, as your listeners are probably familiar, Bishop Roulette, people are interpreting this differently. And that adds to some of the stress that LGBTQ Latter-day Saints feel. So, you know, I, I that's kind of where I hope we go on a lot of these things. What can you do about Bishop Roulette? I mean, that's <laughs> tough. that is like like that's a good one. We we we. I mean, sorry, Jared, I took that one from you. You had that. Oh, yeah, I down. actually had written down that question. Yeah, yeah. Like, I mean, what do we do about that? It's one of the great blessings of the church is we have lay clergy and we rotate around to have different callings. But in some of these most sensitive areas, it can just. I, I think your whole world could come crashing I down. Think we have to. That's tough. Uh, it's a great question. I think we have to have better training, and we have to give bishops better what to do in specific situations so that there's consistent application um, and maybe concurrent with that, get more to a principles-based thing where they're not trying to legislate or sort of understand all these different things. But I think it's a training issue. And I think the church probably needs to get into more of these specific issues. And so there's consistency. I'm a business guy. So I'd approach it from a business standpoint and say, there needs to be consistent, consistent, application of our doctrine in all these different areas at the local level. I think the YSAs always thought that when I opened the handbook, I, there was a, a scale based on their sin and frequency that taught me, gave me a, um, a matrix, so to speak, on how long until they could take the sacrament again or go to the temple. And that doesn't exist. And maybe it's good that doesn't exist, but it does, you know, because then I can go by the spirit, but it does create a bunch, a lot of differences from bishop to bishop. And, you know, something that you talked about early in the book is that, you know, you, once, once you kind of had this, because you had an online social media presence and you kind of began to build, for lack of a better word, a reputation for being somebody who was friendly to LGBTQ members, uh, that you, you talked about how you would get calls and emails and Facebook uh, requests from people to meet with you. And, and, and obviously you would have to walk a fine line with that, you know, that, you know, that you couldn't counsel them in an ecclesiastical way or give them interviews or things like that, but you still would go and have lunch or meet with or talk on the phone with these people. And I, and I think that maybe is part as a partial, at least answer to what we're talking about with the problem of Bishop Roulette is that, you know, bishops aren't the only people in our lives. Bishops are an important person in our lives because we need sometimes to counsel with our ecclesiastical leader or to have an interview, et cetera. But, you know, if we have, if we have a Bishop, I, I've, I remember, it's not, I remember at BYU having one Bishop that I, I, you know, it was hurtful because I felt like he didn't care about me. I I thought he didn't like me very much. Um, But luckily, that's honest. Yeah, but there, there. Luckily, there were um, lots of other people in my life who did care about and like me, and I, you know, and so there were a couple times where I did need to 
you know, have a meeting with the bishop because he was the guy to talk to for, you know, a tell recommend interview or whatever. But for other things where I needed someone to trust, who could I could trust to confide in or whatever, you know, we can go outside of our bishops. And unfortunately, I mean, I, I think I'm oversimplifying and I would not want to belittle anyone's experience who has had a bad experience uh, with a bishop who was not understanding or who, um, you know, made them feel less than because they were LGBTQ or whatever. But also, I, I mean, and so again, but without diminishing that, I, I do think that we can look outside of our ecclesiastical leaders who have been assigned to us to find support and hope in parents and friends, aunts, uncles, etc. Love that. Anyway, I'm sorry. I, you were supposed to be answering that. And I guess I answered. <laughs> it's, this is a team effort. That's, I guess so. Uh, yes. I, I, I want to circle back to almost where we started. We're talking about leadership. We're talking about what bishops can do. I'm thinking about how social media played a very big role, I think, in, in, in your experiences when you first became a YSA bishop. Um, and it helped you connect with a lot of members. And it still, of course, helps you connect with many people. But what advice do you have for leaders today when it comes to effective engagement with their flock on social media? And potentially, what what pitfalls do you see? Sort of what should you do and what should you not do? Um, and this could be broader than even just LGBTQ, but... I, I think every I kind of wrote this in the book. I think every leader should should kind of play to their strengths. And if you're not into social media, I think you can be a great local leader and never get into social media. That may never be your strength. Um, so don't take my story and say, well, to be effective, I've got to do what Richard Osler did. So I think every I think the key is to um, play to your strengths but then try to develop some of the other areas. Um, I think you want to create a safe, I think you need to say and do things that create a feeling that you're safe and the ward is safe, that everybody is welcome here. So I think in your, however you're communicating the ward in a ward newsletter, over the pulpit, I think it's great to say LGBT people are welcome here. And people, Elder Uchtdorf has a quote you're familiar with. There's no sign at the door that says our testimony needs to be this high to enter. To me, that's a principle that applies to a a lot of different areas. He's basically saying at the congregation, everybody should be welcome. I like to say the gate's wide at the congregation. There's no belief or behavior hurdle to feel welcome in an LDS congregation. At the temple, the gate narrows. There's a belief and behavior hurdle. But let's don't sort of bring that backwards into the congregation because then we're just going to get small (laughs) and we're going to get less people to the temple. So I think you've got to create a culture with your words and actions is that everybody is welcome here. Um, Come as you are. There's no, and that's what I think Christ did. And then, then we can help people feel the love of God and the atonement of Jesus Christ and move them along to just improve in their lives. My wife and I were uh, we, we were doing scripture study over breakfast this morning, and we were reading in Second Nephi, and you know, it was that great verse. I can't remember it's twenty five or twenty six. Those were the chapters we were in this morning, and you know where he says that all are alike unto God, right? And he gives a very comprehensive list, and he says black and white, bond and free, male and female, and uh, and you know, and I had just you know finished reading this book, and so after we read that, and I I said, gay and straight trans is this like i was like <laughs> I, I don't think nephi intentionally left those out it, he probably wasn't even aware of you know right some of those things but i was like i don't how could we leave out anybody from nephi that's their doctrine 
That's her yeah, doctrine. That everybody, because right. the, the wording is something like, he commandeth none that they should not partake of his goodness. It's like, why would we turn anybody away? You know? I'm with you. Um, I'm with you. Well, there we go. Uh, Richard, anything we have not discussed that you that you feel that, that you've been itching to get out because we failed? To kind of you as a podcast host to ask that. No, I just appreciate the chance to, because I could go on. The risk is I could go on for another hour, but no, I just appreciate the work you're doing, Jeff and Jared, and the chance to be on your channel and, and share some of this work to hopefully bring us together and even and even people that are different than us or outside of our faith, I think to bring us, I think it's one of the challenges is people that have left or people that are different than us. I think our doctrine still wants us to come together, the same human family and, 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 and find, you know, Elder Cook talked about diversity and unity. We can find unity even in differences. And I think that's part of the beautiful parts of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So hopefully this book, helps people have principles to do how to do that in a number of areas. And that doesn't compromise our doctrine. That is our doctrine. So it's not like to do anything I'm suggesting you need to sell out our doctrine. To me, it's just actually living our doctrine and putting it to practice in these more complicated areas. Thank you for that. Well, everybody, the book and the podcast, Listen, Learn, and Love, the book has Oh, there's Jared too. Look at us dropping it right in front of everybody. Uh, embracing right. LGBTQ Latter-day Saints. I think there's just some great counsel here and it, it has both Richard's insights and many, many insights from the people he's interviewed over the years. Absolutely a worthwhile read. And again, you can get links to it over at thisweekinmormons.com. We hope you'll pick it up. Uh, Richard Osler, thank you so much for taking the time to join us this week and impart your wisdom. Thank so, you. Anyway, and everybody, thanks for tuning in. Jared, thanks for being here, buddy. Much Always. appreciated. Sir. Yes, I'm glad uh, to be here. We hope, we hope you'll join us again next week for another episode of This Week in Mormons. Uh, until that time, be well, be holy, and be happy. Bye-bye. <laughs>